Hi, everyone. This is Brian Choi, CEO of the Food Institute. This week on the Food Institute podcast, we're going to be talking about how ESG, environmental, social, and governance, is taking center stage in food and beverage companies from a corporate policy, capital markets, and investing perspective. To help us understand ESG, we have three leaders from BMO Harris Bank who will share their insights on how they're advising clients on this topic and how ESG has impacted their own organization from an investing and business practice perspective. I'd like to thank our sponsor, BMO Harris Bank's Food, Consumer, and Agribusiness Group. Whether you're a producer, processor, retailer, or distributor, every company throughout the food continuum needs a financial partner that understands the factors that can impact their business. To learn more about how BMO can help, please take a look at the link in the description of this episode. Well, I'd like to welcome Erica Kuhlman, Jonathan Hackett, and Mark Kuzami from BMO Harris Bank to the Food Institute podcast. To kick things off, Erica, can you share a little bit about yourself, your role, and BMO's commitment to ESG? Sure. And uh, first, you know, Brian, thank you for having us and and hosting this discussion. Um, it's really interesting. It is increasingly a a major topic. Uh, for all the clients that and and prospective clients that uh, our group certainly has been visiting with over the, I would say over the past year, um, I so I head up our food consumer and agribusiness group at at BMO Harris, and uh, it is a group of about sixty people that are just solely dedicated to working with food, beverage, and agribusiness companies across the country. Um, and uh, I, I've been doing this long enough that I don't even want to say how long I've been doing it. So let's just <laughs> leave it at that. Um, but for for BMO, I mean, ESG is really a very important initiative, not just for our clients, but as well for the bank. Um, and it uh, we had some incredibly great news over the weekend. We were uh, ranked the top bank. Uh, uh, Corporate Knights uh, 2022 Global 100, the top bank uh, for ESG. And uh, that was for the third year in a row. So, you know, we can talk a lot about ESG and and how we're committed to it, which we are. Uh, But I think when you're recognized by uh, third parties, uh, that really speaks volumes to, I think, what the bank, uh, the bank's commitment. Um, Just more broadly, you know, we... Uh, BMO Capital Markets has uh, committed almost uh, $300 billion um, to financing companies um, and sustainability and sustainable finance. Uh, We have a dedicated team and really, I think, all the resources to help help our clients to develop their strategy and uh, as it relates to to ESG and, and sustainable finance. So with that, I am going to uh, hand it over to the experts in this. Uh, Jonathan Hackett, he is a managing director and is the head of BMO's uh, Sustainable Finance Group. And uh, then we'll hear from Mark Kuzami, who is a managing director and heads up our Impact Investment Fund, which is uh, about $250 million that's dedicated to investments in, in, in ESG uh, early early growth companies. So with that, I'll turn it over to you. All right. Well, first of all, congratulations on winning that award on on ESG. That's a huge accomplishment. Um, And so Jonathan, you know, welcome to the show. And uh, can you share a little bit about your background, your role within BMO and how you help companies? Yeah. So our sustainable finance team really is there to help make sure that we're giving clients advice 
around how both ESG and sustainable finance impacts them and their access to capital. So we think about you know, ESG is an opportunity, but also a risk that all of our clients face as they think about long term, how they're perceived in the market. Um, and I would expand even beyond how they're seeing the market, but really how they're perceived by customers. We're increasingly seeing people making buying decisions, people making relationship decisions on the basis of ESG, not just on the core impact, but also, you know, are you aligned on practices? Are you aligned on uh, social impact in a way that reflects how they want to uh, interact with the world. All right, great. So, you know, Food Institute, we we cover a wide variety of, of food and beverage companies from agriculture, food manufacturing, food retail, food service. So why is it, why is it imperative for, for them to think about ESG? Um, why is it so important now compared to what it was maybe even like three, four, five years ago? Yeah, so I think some of it is just a relabeling. Some of these things were material factors before, but never been captured under a single headline that really would reflect the full impact for a company. So I'll, I'll go to one, labor practices, you know, labor relations. This is something that I don't think is a surprise for people when they say it's an important factor. But seeing it through the lens of ESG, you can see it as part of a broader set of concerns in the S, the social factors that really drive performance of a company and that for consumers can really be a factor. You know, we've seen uh, boycotts related to labor practices in the food space over the last year, people saying that they didn't want to, you know, cross the proverbial picket line. And that's one where you can see an impact that really says it, it's not just, you know, do you have labor stoppages, but it's also how do you, your overall communication of your approach around ESG, around your approach with your employees, how does that impact your perception? And so when we think about those factors that, you know, have always been there, Obviously, they're material. Obviously, they're things that people think about. Integrating them into what I'll call just the awareness question of do you understand the risks that you're taking on is I think where investors are really pushing on ESG and, and pushing that as a label. It, it's really a way of saying, look, we know that every industry has different factors, you know, whether it be SASB or whether it be any of these other frameworks, you can look up and see, you know, what are the important things that I should be concerned about just as a participant in an industry. But the question that I think investors are asking management teams is, do you know what's important for you, for your industry, for your consumers, for your customers, wherever you are in the value chain? Are you thinking through those factors? And do I know that you know what you don't know? Do I know that you're on a journey of improvement? And that's where a lot of these standards and expectations around increased disclosure aren't just to kind of check a lot of boxes. But to make sure that there's no surprises waiting for people, you know, that there's nothing that when they when they get deeper into your business, they're going to find something out that you don't know within your business. Right. That's very interesting. And I'd love to delve a little bit more into the business case. So you mentioned both the opportunities and the risks. Um, you've spent a lot of time in the mining industry uh, and advising also. And, and so it's very clear from an ESG perspective why these, these types of companies uh, are very focused on ESG. But for food and beverage, you know, can you can you uh, explain a little bit more about these risks and these opportunities from a FMB perspective? Yeah, so you know I, I'll, I'll expand to agriculture first because it's I think everyone's favorite place to go in this area and it, it has a few really useful analogies um, or, or proof points. So one is just ESG risks occur at different time horizons, and so you can think about acute near-term ESG risks. Uh, you know, do you have the right safety practices in place? Are you you know do you have a near-term risk of water scarcity? If you're in a drought-prone area and you're suddenly not going to be able to water your crops, 
that is something that is really important to understand how you're managing those near-term risks. There are also longer-term ESG risks. Uh, factors like changes in dietary consumption, changes in buying patterns in the the end consumer, and what exposure you have there. Of you know, are you thinking through? Um, is my product or what I'm working on today is that going to be in demand in five years, or is there going to be a material drop off? And likewise for growers in general, the question of climate change. You know, is there going to be a material impact that says what I grow today? may not work in the future in the environment I'm in, and therefore I might have to change what I have from the land I have. I think if you switch it on to the opportunity side, we're seeing more and more people thinking across the value chain and saying, is there a way I can draw differentiation, draw distinction, create new consumer affiliation from an ESG lens? You know, mm -hmm. can I be the environmentally conscious option? And if I am, you know, I'll go to the far extreme. If I'm growing grain and somebody wants to sell a zero carbon, you know, grain product, they need me to be delivering a lower carbon footprint or a negative carbon footprint that they can integrate into their supply chain. So if I'm looking at regenerative practices, if I'm looking at carbon sequestration and the ability to get credit for what I'm doing, that can be a new revenue stream within what I'm doing. It can be a greater sales uh, you know, tool in how I'm pursuing those customers. And I think if you go through the entire value chain, you see different things that play into this. You know, waste avoidance is one that you know can sound like you're talking about avoiding a downside risk. And you know, we think about methane release and waste from food all the time. But you know, when, when I say waste avoidance, that's just revenue, right? Like if, if I right. take 10% of my product and I don't throw it in the garbage at the end of the day, or 10% of my inputs and I don't throw it in the garbage, that's that is a net growth opportunity that that's really material. And you know. I used to be a management consultant and we always looked at these types of waste lines and said, well, in a thin margin business, if you've got something where you've got 5% profit margins and you throw out 10% of your product, you know, that there is a massive opportunity in that 10% to right. really meaningfully impact that, you know, profit margin. And, you know, if you can take 10% of your waste and reduce it and change that to a revenue line, you're suddenly talking about a 20% increase in profits. Right. You know, it's interesting, like, I think a lot of the, the companies that I talk to, when you bring up the topic of ESG, it's sort of, so, so you know, somewhere in the ether, right? It's, it's hard, hard to quantify. And as you know, many management teams are focused on near-term bottom line results. But we're getting to the point now where, where cost of capital, access to capital, these, these things are, are in part driven by uh, adopting to an, uh, an ESG mandate. And so can you talk a little bit about the cost of capital, access to capital, and what that may mean for food and beverage companies today? Yeah. So, you know, look, I'll, I'll start with the place where it's easiest to measure. Within the world of fixed income and especially investment grade bonds, you know, we see increasingly a clear market signal on a willingness to pay for a green bond or a willingness to pay for a sustainability linked bond. Um, the ability to get those investors that are showing up into a deal to write larger checks into it or put, place larger orders and to get more investors that wouldn't necessarily have spent time in a name, but because they have a sustainability mandate that is really proliferated across that space, you know, they're willing to spend the time to diligence the credit that they've not spent time with and to try and participate in a deal. And so there we see very clear outcomes, you know. It doesn't sound a lot when you say, well, you know, five basis points of execution benefit, but when you, you know, first put that across the life of a bond and say, well, five basis points every year on that full amount. And then second, you know, compare it to the baseline cost of capital that you're getting in that space. That's a pretty material improvement. I, I think 
when you go beyond that though and you say well look it's not just within the bond market that we see this we are seeing equity investors really changing and reallocating as they integrate esg certainly if you think about those large asset managers large capital allocators that are making those decisions it can really change the access to capital from you know a, a public markets perspective and then we've also seen it play into the the, the private equity market where I, I think you know two years ago is the first time i started getting questions from private equity investors uh, and it works the exact same way as it does on the consumer side where you know their end consumers uh, as private equity are asset owners and as those asset owners have signed up to the principles for responsible investing, to all of these other things, they've started pushing down on the private equity teams and saying, how do I know you're not taking risks that I don't know about? How do I know you're pursuing all these opportunities? And so those same players are asking those same questions and, and you know, making sure that they're integrated into their investment approach. And you know, at the most extreme versions, if you get into something where there's a risk that you know, they just aren't able to get comfortable with because they're asking questions. And as a management team, you're not prepared to answer them because you just don't know. That can be a deal breaker. You know, that's the most extreme version is when we say access to capital, there is, yes, you have access to capital and no, you don't. But, you know, across that spectrum, there there are lots of ways that it can just unlock, you know, passive investors that are really passionate about space. And if you have a positive impact thesis, the ability to bring them into the fold or, you know, across all of those areas where they're just little screening factors that might say, look, we don't want the following type of exposure. The ability to know and to give the information uh, is really imperative because so many of these places, because it's about risk, if you say, I don't know, all they hear is the last word. All they hear is no. Right. <laughs> right. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, Jonathan, you you spoke a little bit about the agricultural part of of, of ESG. Um, can you share a little bit about what your experience has been with, you know, food manufacturers, food retail and food service and how, you know, what a effective policy might look like for those particular types of businesses? Yeah. So look, it's obviously for each industry, there's a full view of what are the relevant factors? What are the key drivers on an ESG scorecard? I'll, mm -hmm. I'll touch on a few that I think about just from where we've worked with different en entities, you know, within manufacturing, energy cost and energy efficiency are, are very related, right? And so it's not just the, hey, are you paying attention to carbon? Are you paying attention to water intensity? These are factors that you know everyone worries about when it comes to the environmental factors. But certainly when you think about the energy inputs you have, you know that's one where if you're running things off of natural gas that you could electrify, those are material ESG factors. And then the one that definitely plays into that space is waste. You know, you're paying often for cartage of waste, you're paying for, you know, what is essentially a downside. And the more you can get towards a zero waste outcome, you get environmental benefits, you get, you know, a, a social license benefit. Nobody likes the picture of waste, mm -hmm. um, but you also get, obviously, the, the cost benefit of not, not throwing it out. Um, retail and food service, I'll, I'll say like the it's always a cheap one to go to over the last two years, but getting your employees to show up is a hard game when it's COVID, right? Like, and <laughs> that's the most extreme version, but you know, it is an ESG risk to say like on employees, do you have a value proposition that will get people to show up to a job day in, day out? Does that look like long-term profit sharing? Sometimes that makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. Does it look like a set of, you know, benefits a set of you know practices that are supportive i'll, I'll go to you know 
food retail, grocery stores, I always think about shifts. You know, there are laws that companies have been exposed to as different jurisdictions integrate requirements for notice, requirements for communication around it, practices and expectations. And if that was where your margins were, that's an ESG risk, right? Like if you think as an investor, you could suddenly see a company that was relying on the flexibility of the workforce, you know, I think outside of the food space, companies that were in the kind of variable transportation, the ride hailing kind of space, all relied on a, a, a space within the regulatory environment versus what employees were willing to accept and understanding that there were opportunities and pressures. Um, and when those regulations change, you can see the profit margins change material in those businesses. And I, I would think about it the same way of, you know, we see stores, we see restaurants that are just not open. Uh, because they are not able to attract employees. And like, it, it's always cheap in the ESG world when you point to something that is like a global factor and say, this is ESG. But to me, that that's it's the most extreme version, but it's something that we see at the edges, even when it's not a global pandemic. Right. Very, very interesting. I'd love to bring in Mark into the conversation. You know, um, and uh, Mark, if you can just uh, share a little bit about your role, your background, and uh, about the funds that, that you manage on behalf of BIMA, I think uh, that would be a, another interesting part of the conversation that I'd like to, to, um, to focus on. So, Mark, can you uh, please introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, and it's great to be here. Uh, so as it was mentioned by Erica, you know, we, we manage a $250 million impact investment fund on behalf of the bank. Uh, it's, it's bank balance sheet that we're investing. And ultimately, or the, you know, the, the overall thesis around this is one of corporate sustainability, right? And this, again, kind of ties in to we, we, we reference some of the broader impact and you know, in, uh, impact sustainability and sustainability initiatives of the bank. This fits within that. And the idea of corporate sustainability is a very broad one which captures many areas. And, and we do think about broader themes around decarbonization and around circular economy. So waste management, recycling, uh, you know, materials, and then a broad theme around food and ag generally, right? Looking at everything from production all the way through to consumption uh, and really thinking about how do we invest capital to drive that change towards sustainability, right? To facilitate that transition towards sustainability. Uh, and that's really the, the the main goal of our fund. Um, and the one thing I will, I will add on top of that, and maybe we dig in a little bit, uh, is it is a market rate fund. Right? When we think about our investments, we think about them as how do I get market rate return for the risk I'm incurring uh, alongside the impact that we are going to drive through the investment uh, and through and through the business. Yeah. No, it's it's. Uh, I commend uh, BMO for. You know, for bringing together a fund, um, it's one thing to to say that you're you're supportive of ESG. It's a, it's another thing to to uh, set aside your own balance sheet, two hundred fifty to three hundred million dollars, and make that commitment into investing in in this type of technology in support of ESG goals. So, really commend you and and uh, congratulations on on the award that uh, you guys received. Um, so. I'd love to to delve a little bit more into how BMO thinks about risk and reward. Um, and so as you're looking uh, at deploying these funds into certain certain companies that um, you know that focus on decarbonization, recycling, um, food and ag tech, how how do you think about risk and reward? Like how do you quantify 
um, the the social impact, for example, or the sustainable impact as as it relates to an overall kind of investment thesis? Sure. Uh, and, and I would say that uh, out of the gate, uh, my, my first answer is, look, we assess risk as any other investor will, right? It is it is at the end of the day, businesses that we invest in have to be economically viable. They have to have a value proposition that that drives profits. Um, I think where where we add some uh, some additional kind of layers, if you will, around our the way we assess risk is we do look at the ESG component. We do look at the impact that's being generated, uh, and we do it at both from a risk and a reward perspective. Because you know, to, to kind of Jonathan's comments earlier, we do account for a lot of these ESG risks, which are inherent in any business. By the way, right? This is not just businesses that would deem themselves sustainable. Those risks are inherent across the board. Uh, we tend to focus on them as aspects of our underwriting. Um, and I think, again, to Jonathan's point, many investors have always uh, assessed these risks in their underwriting. They just never really understood how to label it or how to put it together in a, in a coherent uh, approach, right? To think about as a, as a, you know, um, a, a package of, of area of risk area that they need that needs to be addressed. Um, so, so we look at all of those, those aspects. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we do look at is what, from an impact perspective, what is, what, what are we driving from an impact perspective? And so when we think about the return, yes, there's that economic component, but we're also very deliberate and very purposeful about the impact that we're going to drive. And we look at that also as a return, right? For us, the impact is, is necessary. It's not necessarily sufficient, right? But it is necessary. So it is a component. So we can have a great economic story with no deliberate impact. And that doesn't fit for what we're doing, right? That, you know, we, we're, a, we're a senator of the operating principles for impact investing. That is not how we, we operate. We, we have to be, you know, we, we have committed ourselves to being deliberate in the impact that we generate through our investments. And so that means when we think about the impact that we're driving with our capital, what is it? How are we measuring it? How do we, how do we, you know, how do we assess it? How do we measure it? And that is paramount for us going into an investment. So, you know, there are, there are, you know, there are aspects and, 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 and again, Jonathan was talking about, you know, waste line items, right? If you can reduce waste, you generate a, a economic benefit to the company. If the waste reduction is purely driven by a cost cutting exercise, that doesn't technically fit what we're doing because really, you know, yes, it's like, it, 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 it's, it's accretive, economically accretive, but we want the mission. We want the purpose of the, of the business of, of what we're investing in to be that impact right? Alongside the economics, right? So it has to be both. Uh, and so we spend a lot of time with the companies that we, that we work with and that we invest in understanding what's the impact that they're driving, how we assess it. And then ultimately how we, on a, on a regular basis, you know, whether it's on a quarterly or monthly and a quarterly basis, how do we measure that, that impact in order to be able to truly quantify the, the impact we're having? What's the time frame you're looking at? Are we, are we looking at uh, three years, five years, 10 years. Can you give us a sense of like when you know that from an impact perspective that you've reached, you know, a certain goal, when will you know that you've achieved, you, you've achieved that? And, and how do you look at that from a time perspective? Sure. We, you know, we look at, we underwrite our, our investments to be typically as a three to six year hold periods. Um, but when we think about the impact, it's a bit of a, it's a bit different because we want to show quantifiable impact out of the gate, right? We make our investment, we know what the impact is going to be, and we start measuring from day one. Ultimately, our goal is to get a company to a scale where that impact continues to scale with the company, right? So we continue to broaden the impact and increase the impact we're having as the company scales and grows. And really, our, our, our mission, you know, part of our, our, our thesis and mission is that as that company scales and grows, 
the impact because it's inherent in the business continues to grow as well. And so even after we've exited, right? So again, we underwrite our holds to let's say a three to six year hold period. We will exit that company, hopefully generate some profit for our investors, for the bank. Uh, but we've also scaled that company and the impact not only has grown bigger, but it's become more in- embedded into the business itself. And again, when I talked about being deliberate and purposeful around that impact, it's part of the business business itself, right? It's part of the way that op- the operations and part of what the, the, the company is delivering. So as it scales, that impact grows, it also becomes more embedded. And so it, it has it has more staying power. And so the, ultimately, when we think about the long-term trajectory of that impact, it should, and if we've done our job properly, it should far, it will, it will outlast our, our investment in the company for, you know, again, for the, for the, for the life of the company itself. So that, that is the goal is that it is really a long-term, um, a long-term, a long-term vision around that impact. Great. Great. Can you share maybe two examples of investments in the fund that you're currently, that you're currently, um, that you've currently invested in? Um, and maybe share some of the kind of like in terms of dollar size amounts of investment and and some of the low hanging fruit as it relates to kind of decarbonization, recycling, circularity, and food and ag tech. Can you just maybe um, share a few examples? Sure. For yeah. Our so um, we've got we have one we have one company in the portfolio that is a, an, ag, an ag tech business. Uh, it's a company called Sound Agriculture, um, and this company has kind of two sides of the business and one side is more established and another side is a little bit more earlier stage, but the more established side of the business is really about nutrient efficiency. And they've developed a product to help effectively increase crop yield per, per input. Right. And, and ultimately the goal here is to reduce the reliance for growers to reduce their, to reduce their reliance on fertilizers uh, and for inputs. Um, and obviously uh, the, the use of fertilizers are a necessary, right? We, we need to get crop fields up in order to feed ourselves. However, there is a big impact from an environmental perspective, right? Both on the land, on the car, you know, from a carbon emission perspective, there's a lot of, of impact, negative impact from the use of fertilizers. And so what this product does allows the, uh, you know, to up, up to, depending on what lands it's being applied up to about a third, it, it can reduce the, 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 the need for fertilizer by up to about a third. And so when we think about it, you start doing the calculation, okay, so for every ton of fertilizer that's removed, you're, you're, you're reducing, you know, the, the impact on the land, you're reducing the, the carbon emission associated with that fertilizer. And so that's one of the ways that we think about quantifying here. So the more, the more of their product gets sprayed, every acre that gets sprayed on, you're reducing carbon emissions, you're reducing the, you know, leaching and, and kind of the other negative effects on the soil. Um, so we think again, and, and this kind of goes back to, uh, you know, from there's, and there's, this is not necessarily from like how they operate the business. It's embedded in the business model itself, right? As they grow, every sale they make of this, of this product furthers the impact story, right? It furthers the, the scale of that impact. And so that's when we talk about it being embedded in the business, this is a great example of it is part of the business model. Um, we, we have another, uh, company that we're in the midst of, of executing now, we're working uh, towards a closing, hopefully next month, uh, on in the indoor agriculture space and then the controlled environment agriculture space. Uh, and there again, you know, it's about you know, the efficiencies gained, the impact uh, that, that is achieved through that business is inherent in the business, right? Because they grow indoors in a controlled environment, because they grow hydroponically, the, you know, there's 98% less water use, 95% less land use, you know, they have these just inherent positives and environmental positives associated with the business. And again, embedded in the business. So the more leafy greens they produce, the more herbs they produce, 
every head of lettuce is one less head of lettuce that's being grown open field and using all the water, using all that arable land. And so again, as we scale, the impact scales as well and will survive post our investment because it is inherent in the business. And so that's really what we look for. Um, and again, I think those are great examples of when we talk about embedded in the business, those are great examples of how that impact is embedded and scales by definition uh, as the company grows. Well, great. Well, thanks for sharing that. I'd love to bring Erica back into the conversation here. And, um, you know, there are many companies out there that that where ESG is still very new. Um, and so maybe you can kind of, uh, as we close out this podcast, maybe you can share how these companies can implement an ESG framework um, and what sort of resources that you would recommend in terms of learning about um, ESG, adopting an ESG policy. Um, can you share a few thoughts there, Erica? Sure. Um, and I think it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, I have been in several meetings over with, uh, with, with clients and, and with prospective clients over the past couple of weeks. And the real focus of our discussion was on ESG and really that linking capital and capital providers to a company's, uh, ESG goals and and their strategy. And so it is, and these, you know, one was a public company. So clearly, you know, I think when they're, you know, that that's more obvious, right, to, to because ESG is an important component for uh, stakeholders in a public company, investors and, uh, and shareholders. Uh, but, you know, we've had several conversations with private companies. And so I think that's really interesting because they're getting very serious about, about sustainability. But, you know, we talk a lot about sustainability and that's, I guess, easier to measure. You know, um, we talked about waste and energy management, but, you know, the S in ESG is, is social. And so it's also about uh, diversity and inclusion. It is about your, you know, your employees' uh, well-being. And so that's like a major shift for, and certainly, you know, with some of our basic processing companies we work with. Um, so it, and, and I think what's interesting too, is it's not just external, right? Shareholders, access to capital, uh, investors. I mean, you know, you can go down the list, but it's also about making your company better for your, your employees. And it resonates with, you know, we've talked so much about um, labor and talent, and it's as much about attracting and being the, you know, for lack of a better term, employer of choice. Um, but, you know, your, your team members want to know as a management team that you are doing something about this. And it's, it's very important to consumers. So you see that externally, but also for, um, you know, for employees, they want to see this. So, you know, we're um, at BMO. It's, uh, I mean, obviously it's important to us as, as a, an institution um, and, and where we can be helpful. I mean, you've just heard from Jonathan and, and Mark uh, I mean, we've got a whole team here that's that's ready to jump in, and I love listening to them because I learn so much. Um, but it it is, you know, we take a very 
uh, proactive and and advisory approach to um, working with a company to you know understand what their goals are and and really to help them work through a strategy and um, you know really their their KPIs. So it's a very it's a very hands on approach, um, and this is you know this is not going away. This is important to to banks. I mean, for a private company, kind of bringing capital in, whether that's you know senior debt or is uh, you know what Mark's doing from a an equity standpoint or a private equity uh, standpoint. Um, it it it's about uh, attracting capital. And it's important to capital providers. It's important to investors, and it's it's really important to you know the the, the employees of the of the company. Great. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to thank BMO Harris Bank for sponsoring this week's episode. Just a reminder to follow, like, and subscribe to the Food Institute podcast. We'll catch you next time. This is Brian Choi signing off. Mm-hmm.